Everyone told Trump it was not going to happen. The lead starts right now. Trump's attorney general, Trump's campaign manager, Trump's own daughter. The January 6th Select Committee lays out evidence that Donald Trump knew what he was saying about the election was a lie, but he kept going anyway. Then, flipping the script, Vladimir Putin now publicly admitting the real reason he invaded Ukraine, the new propaganda message being spread as Russia scoffs at sanctions. Plus, a woman in China brushes off a man's unwanted advance. What happened next in this video is sparking outrage as women across China say it's not surprising. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news on our money lead. The Dow plummeting, about to close, down more than 850 points. Investors are growing increasingly nervous that the Federal Reserve is once again going to hike interest rates when it meets later this week. CNN's Allison Kozik joins me live. And Allison, is this a one-off or do you think the markets are going to keep falling? You know, that's anyone's guess. I think we're really going to have to wait and see what the Federal Reserve does on Wednesday when it announces what kind of interest rate hike is in store for the economy. I think what you see is investors really um, taking a, a lot of nervousness to uh, to Wall Street at this point because the Fed, many say, has been kind of slow to react to the significant inflation that consumers have felt everywhere from the grocery store to the gas station. You know, uh, does the market want to see the Fed raise uh, interest rates more aggressively? Analysts I'm talking with say, yes, they want to see the Fed be more aggressive about it because that would wind up taming inflation, the very thing that is weighing on the U.S. economy. The worry, of course, is that the Fed could tighten too much and plunge the uh, U.S. economy into a recession. It's really a delicate walk uh, for the Federal Reserve. But I think at this point, I think the market wants to see the Fed uh, try to get out ahead of this because many believe the Fed has been behind the curve for so long. All right, Allison Kozik, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning it, turning now to our politics lead in the January 6th committee, laying out damning evidence today that former President Trump was told over and over and over again that his claims of election fraud were not rooted in fact. He was told by members of his campaign. He was told by members of his legal team. He was told by even his own attorney general, Bill Barr. When I went into this and would you know, tell them how crazy some of these allegations were. There was never, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. My opinion then and my opinion now is that uh, the election was not stolen by fraud. And uh, I haven't seen anything since the election that changes my mind on that. But despite mountains of evidence, Trump continued to push absolutely unhinged claims of voter fraud over and over, leading Attorney General Barr to make this conclusion. I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with uh, with uh, he's become detached from reality. Detached from reality. CNN's Ryan Noble starts off our coverage from Capitol Hill with more on Attorney General Barr's testimony and the declarations from three other Republican officials who investigated some of Trump's bogus claims. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. Donald Trump's false claim that he won the 2020 election before all the votes were counted. A lie he continues to peddle, but one that some of his closest advisors told the January 6th committee they didn't believe. Like his attorney general. He's become detached from reality. If he really believes this stuff. His campaign manager. 
I didn't think what was happening was necessarily honest or professional. And several top campaign lawyers. I remember telling him that I didn't believe the Dominion allegations. What they were proposing, I thought was nuts. And in the theory was also completely nuts. Trump's insistence that he won the election despite a wide range of evidence to the contrary is at the core of the committee's argument that he purposefully and potentially criminally worked to prevent the certification of the election results, a conspiracy that ultimately led to his supporters storming the Capitol on January 6th. I told him that the stuff that his people were shoveling out to the public were bull- was bullshit. I mean, that the claims of fraud were bullshit, that all the early claims uh, that I understood on, uh, were, were completely bogus and silly. Bill Stepien, Trump's former campaign manager, was expected to appear live. But after his wife went into labor, he bowed out, the committee playing excerpts from his explosive deposition instead, with him detailing election night in the White House. And did anybody who was a part of that conversation disagree with your message? Yes. Who is that? The the president disagreed with that. The result was a methodical rejection of Trump's claims of fraud delivered by his campaign and White House advisors. Respected professionals who said that Trump stopped talking to them and starting trusting people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. There were two groups of family. We called them kind of my team and Rudy's team. I I didn't mind being characterized as being part of Team Normal. Election experts and state election officials also testified that there was zero chance Trump won the election. There was no credible evidence of fraud produced by the Trump campaign or his supporters. The committee also drawing a line between Trump's big lie and his fundraising. The claims that the election was stolen were so successful. President Trump and his allies raised $250 million. The committee finding donors were told the money would be used to fight voter fraud, fraud that didn't exist. The last email sent to donors a half hour before the Capitol was breached. And today was only step two in a seven-step argument by this committee in their belief that Donald Trump stood in the way of the election results and prevented the peaceful transfer of power, at least attempted to. On Wednesday, they will take step three, and that's where they will outline an attempt by the former president to install a puppet attorney general that would take on the responsibility of investigating those thin fraud claims. And it's at that time, Jake, that we're expected to hear from some former DOJ officials that push back on Trump's claims of fraud and refused to do his bidding. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining us now, CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel. Jamie, instead of fact-checking the former president's claims themselves, the committee today really used former Attorney General Bill Barr as a way to dismantle many of these insane conspiracies point by point and in general, why did they choose that strategy? Look, I think today, Jake, was a very bad day for Donald Trump. There's no question Bill Barr was the star witness. And look, it it doesn't hurt your case for the committee when the former attorney general is really calling out his boss. Uh, it doesn't hurt also that Bill Barr is blunt and he is colorful, and we've heard some of the quotes, but just to go through them again, he called election fraud bogus, silly, rubbish, idiotic, and, quote, bullshit, he said twice. Uh, He also pointed out that Trump was not interested in the facts. I think that the only question is, why did it take Bill Barr so long 
to speak today, but uh, I think the committee really knew that Barr would jump out as a very senior cabinet member, Jake. And Jamie, uh, committee member Zoe Lofgren used the end of today's hearing to talk about how much money the Trump campaign raised off the big lie. She calls it the big ripoff. And, and she said that members of the Trump family were benefiting from the scheme. Uh, after the hearing, I asked, about, I asked her about it. Take a listen. For example, we know that um, Guilfoyle was paid uh, for the introduction she gave at the speech. I mean, on January 6th, she received compensation for that. But is that a, is that a crime? I'm not saying it's a crime, but I think it's a grift. Kim Guilfoyle, uh, obviously Donald Trump Jr.'s fiance. Right. Um, what role does the money from the big lie play in this investigation? I think this is a critical part of the investigation. There was a team called the Green Team, and it was just to go after this, follow the money. I've spoken to people about this. They don't know where it goes as far as could there be criminal charges. But there are real questions here, Jake. $250 million that was raised. And one of the things I was told by a source close to the committee is they hope that Trump supporters understand that not only was there a lie here about election fraud, but to add insult to injury, uh, Trump and his allies came and took their money by playing on that. Yeah. Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. Appreciate sure. it. Joining us now is Chris Krebs. He's the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. He was fired by President Trump for publicly rejecting Trump's bogus claims of voter fraud. Uh, Krebs, Chris, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. So you forcefully pushed back against Trump's claims of election fraud, both before and after uh, you were fired. So what was your reaction today when you heard from these officials like Bill Barr, like Bill Stepien, people who also uh, knew that the claims were BS uh, and yet were letting people like you and Commissioner Al Schmidt take all the heat for pushing back on it when apparently they knew it was bogus too? Well, it was reinforcing at least to see that in the depositions, for instance, that Attorney General Barr repeated his claims that he knew that the fraud claims were not true. My team, as I understand it, after my departure, had briefed the attorney general and leadership at the FBI on uh, you know, the process of election, the security redundancies built in. So it's entirely consistent with everything we knew all along. Uh, to have this now on the record in such a forceful way is, I think, important to documenting uh, the, the ultimately what, what the, you know, this fraud that was committed upon America. We, you're being very diplomatic. Wouldn't it have been nicer if some of these people have been a little bit more forceful publicly, given the fact that, like, you went through what you went through and you had death threats and, and the like? Yeah, I, look, I mean, I, I think all along I would have preferred a little bit of additional support from some company, uh, the, the GOP and, yeah. and the leadership. But, you know, ultimately, I think to, to see the work that we did in 2020 play such a, a crucial role in establishing a fact pattern uh, that the committee is uh, working towards right now, I think that's... That, it, you know, there's some reassurance and some comfort there. Uh, but where they go with this, what happens next and what, uh, you know, what, what law enforcement or the uh, Department of Justice does next, I think, is what's also critical. So your, your name came up today, as you may have mentioned. Uh, Alex Cannon, a former Trump campaign attorney, cited your work in a phone call with former Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro. Take a listen. I mentioned at that time that the CISA 
Chris Krebs had recently released a report saying that the election was secure. And I believe Mr. Navarro accused me of being an agent of the deep state working with Chris Krebs against the president. I mean, <laughs> no, it, it makes perfect sense, right? The trade advisor is an expert in election. Right. Security. He knows more about election security. Sure. Well, he knows deep sp- state when he sees it. Right. Um, so that report was also entered into the record at today's hearing. That's more important than the crackpot delusions of some of these aides. For viewers who might not remember your report and what it found and what it did not find, can you can you remind us the big takeaways? Yeah, so it was a, uh, a statement issued on November 12th by a coordinating committee of state, local, federal election officials and security officials, along with private sector representatives, that basically said, hey, look, we're the ones that run elections in the United States. We know how these things work. There's no... Uh, there's no evidence of any interference, and it was a safe and secure election. And that was issued on the 12th. It, so I personally didn't issue that, but uh, the people that we were working with for months and months, if not years, in preparation for the 2020 election. There, there was a second report, though, that was released by about 59 election security experts that said that the, uh, the, the claims that were made at the time, whether it's by Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and others or whomever, that we're, they were technically in, incoherent and effectively nonsense. And I think having both of those pieces in the record establishes that Trump and his circle knew or should have known that it was, in fact, a secure election. And yet they proceeded with the grift anyway. Yeah. And, the, and just to remind people, I mean, the claims were so insane. It was that software was being con, you know, changed via Internet by like the Italian military using satellites. I mean, really crazy things. Meanwhile, Sidney Powell, you mentioned Sidney Powell, her video statement talking about how it was a landslide victory for Donald Trump, that's still on the Republican National Committee's Twitter feed. And and worse than that, I mean, I think there are references to Hugo Chavez, the the dead Venezuelan dictator, from the grave, reaching and changing votes in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, wherever. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous that we haven't seen across the board denunciations of the grifters. It, it, and so I think that speaks to a bigger problem with politics that we've all talked about. But getting through this moment right now, I think we're seeing a pretty effective establishment of uh, the, the, just the nonsense we've been through the last couple of years. Have you talked to the January 6th committee about your work and your takeaways and what needs to be done to make sure that they, whoever tried to do this in 2020 can't do it successfully in 2024? Well, I, I interviewed with the committee back in uh, December voluntarily. You know, I've been pretty forthright and forthcoming about the things that we did and my views on the, the kind of state of peril that elections are. I think you, you saw a number of witnesses today that haven't necessarily been as out in front in public. And so I think it was a valuable use of their time to use those rather than perhaps me as a, as a witness. But, uh, you know, seeing someone like Ben Ginsburg, a longtime Republican election attorney, and his recommendations that he made today and elsewhere, I think that's they're, they're laying the path forward on reforms to the Electoral Count Act and others that we can ensure that this sort of sabotage the Electoral College doesn't happen again. Well, when you see a bunch of these people spewing these incre- incredibly crazy election lies, um, running for office, even getting party nominations in Pennsylvania and Arizona, are you worried? Absolutely. I think 22 is paving the path for 24 where you could see a someone in, in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, uh, who just, I guess, today announced she hired, he was hiring Jenna Ellis as, as uh, sure, campaign why not? counsel, right? Of course. You're seeing uh, secretaries of state all over the, the country that have previously said they would not have certified uh, the 2020 election. So it does give me a, a significant amount of concern that, that, again, the risk to 24 
will be determined here now in 2022. Chris Krebs, as always, great to see you. Thank you so much for, for what you do and for being here today. It could be a 30-year first, a big breakthrough on gun reform on the Hill. What's in, what's out. Then, for some Ukrainians, home sweet home can be a dark, dank basement that you're sharing with strangers. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a first in 30 years, a bipartisan group of senators agreeing on compromise legislation to try to reduce gun violence. Now, the deal is just a framework. It has yet to be written as a bill, but it is expected to include mental health and school safety resources, as well as an enhanced review process for 18 to 21-year-olds trying to buy certain semi-automatic weapons, such as AR-15s. CNN's Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill for us. Lauren, senators have been negotiating many different ideas for this gun reform deal. Take us through the framework. What, What else is in it? What's not? Well, this bill is not going to be as sweeping as what the president or even Democrats have been advocating for over the last decade. Instead, what it does do, however, is make some significant changes and put a lot of resources into trying to avoid the kind of mass shootings we've seen across the country. That's more money for mental health, more money for school security, as well as incentives for states to pass their own so-called red flag laws. There is also a change in the review process when someone between the ages of 18 and 21 goes to a gun store and wants to buy a gun like an AR-15. Also significant in this legislation is it closes the so-called boyfriend loophole. This is a provision that Democrats tried to put in the Violence Against Women's Act. They almost got there. At the last minute, the NRA was opposed, and they actually took it out of the bill in the last moments just a few months ago. It just shows you how much has changed in the last several weeks that 10 Republicans now signing on to a framework that includes closing the boyfriend loophole, Jake. And 10 Senate Republicans have agreed to support the bill. But, of course, we have a long way to go before uh, it's actually passed. Are Democrats confident they can maintain the bipartisan support? Well, they are cautiously optimistic, according to aides that I'm talking to. They are going to try to write this bill as quickly as possible. But like you said, a lot of details to fill in here. And just an example of the kind of pressure Republicans are getting right now. Gun Owners of America, a conservative gun group that is a little further to the right than even the NRA, they blasted out an email to their constituency today arguing that they need to convince just one of these 10 Republicans to change their mind. And there's going to be a lot that any one of those Republicans can point to and say, look, I've supported the framework, but I don't support this specific detail that got added at the last minute. So already an intense lobbying effort afoot trying to convince one of these Republicans to back off. Now, the other side of the argument, Republican leadership hoping to get more than just 10 Republicans because they want to give those 10 Republicans some cover if they're going to vote for this legislation. Yeah, I think nine of the 10 are either retiring or not up for re-election until 2024. Uh, Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Our other top politics story from a pariah to a strategic partner, that's what the White House is now calling Saudi Arabia amid a possible meeting between President Biden and the Saudi Crown Prince MBS, despite campaign promises that he would ostracize the Saudi regime. For now, the White House is still declining to confirm if or when the meeting with the Saudis will happen. CNN's chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins, is with us. Caitlin, we're now hearing from White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby. He's the highest profile person to comment on this possible meeting. What does Kirby have to say? 
Well, basically, Jake, what the White House is trying to do now is square what the president said on the campaign trail and the promises he made there with what he's preparing to do now as president, which is take this trip to Saudi Arabia, which hasn't been formally announced by the White House, but everyone knows it is in the works and that they are working on finalizing those details. And so what we're hearing from officials, including John Kirby, who was at the Pentagon and now is at the National Security Council, is that basically they see this as a matter of balancing moral values and those vows to make Saudi Arabia a pariah with strategic national security interest. The president has put in place accountability measures with respect to the Khashoggi killing, but Saudi Arabia is also a strategic partner. Yeah. Um, and, and in foreign policy, it's about balancing the, the values, and we're standing up for the values, and we're not afraid to speak to our human rights concerns in any country around the world, but also pursuing national security interests. And Jake, what John Kirby was referencing there at the beginning is when the White House did release that intelligence report that showed that the Saudi crown prince did approve the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Of course, when that came out, Jake, there was a lot of criticism from some typical allies of this White House because they only penalized lower level Saudi officials. They did not directly try to go after the Saudi crown prince himself, basically deciding that the cost of doing so was too high. Caitlin, today was the first of three January 6th hearings scheduled for just this week. Did President Biden say anything about today's hearing? He hasn't commented on it yet. He did comment after that first high-profile hearing last week, talking about the importance of these hearings and the fact that they were going to lead to new details. He believed that uh, maybe details a lot of Americans hadn't really seen all pieced together yet. And the White House says that President Biden isn't watching these live in real time. Obviously, he has other things on his schedule, but his staff is certainly watching, and they are updating him on the developments of these hearings. And Jake, also the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, just told reporters they believe all Americans should be watching these hearings and seeing what happened. Of course, as former, as President Biden has made no secret of how he feels about how former President Trump handled that day, calling it um, a flagrant violation of the Constitution. Caitlin Collins with the White House for us. Thanks so much. Remember when Vladimir Putin told the Russian people he was invading Ukraine to get rid of so-called Nazis in Ukraine? Well, now Putin's reason is changing, and it seems he's saying the quiet part out loud. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, the White House says Vladimir Putin, quote, absolutely has weaponized food as Ukraine and others continue to accuse Russia of blocking shipments of grain from leaving Ukraine, an accusation Putin called a bluff in an interview with Russian state media. Now, after a weekend of patriotic celebrations in Russia, Putin's bigger endgame seems clearer than ever. CNN's Fred Plykin reports from Moscow, where the president of Russia has shifted from his initial rhetoric of denazifying Ukraine to an openly imperial takeover. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. A display of patriotism on Russia Day. Russian President Vladimir Putin handing out medals just days after he likened himself to Peter the Great, claiming like Tsar Peter 300 years ago, in Ukraine, Russia is taking back land that is rightfully Russia's. He went there to take it back and strengthen it. That's what he was doing. Well, it seems it has also fallen to us to take back and strengthen territories. And if we take these basic values as fundamental to our existence, we will prevail in solving the issues we are facing. After stating at the start of the war that Russia has no intention of occupying Ukraine, Kremlin TV now is amplifying the new slogan. 
taking back and strengthening. We only need to explain to the Ukrainians that we are not playing. We, as our president said, are taking back what's supposed to be ours and strengthening it. Take back and strengthen. Those words also start the show of the man known as Putin's chief propagandist, then showing images of people in Russian-occupied territory in Ukraine receiving Russian passports. And pro-Russian fighters in Ukraine's Donbas region firing at Ukrainian forces with a clear message. All of this is Russian territory, Russian land. They had been separating us for centuries. But the center of Ukraine and the south, east, those are all Russian people. At the same time, the Russians are making clear the current sanctions won't make them change course. The country's economy has stabilized, and this weekend a Russian company reopened several restaurants formerly owned by McDonald's under the new brand name Tasty, and that's it. Some at the grand opening wearing Z-embroidered clothes, the symbol of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as they ate American-style fast food. Food and politics have nothing in common. Like, come on, man, keep things separate. A big run on burgers in Moscow while the war in Ukraine drags on and Vladimir Putin is far from finished with what he sees as his mission. And a lot of this, Jake, has uh, some of the U.S.'s uh, Eastern European NATO allies extremely alarmed. One of the places that Vladimir Putin uh, was talking about when he spoke about Peter the Great and some of the territories that Peter the Great took back, as Vladimir Putin put it, is in today's Estonia, which is, of course, a NATO ally. Finland, which is looking to join NATO, also extremely concerned because they have a big ethnic Russian population. And there is actually a member of the Russian parliament, which is in a party close to Vladimir Putin, that has now started a motion to essentially unrecognize the independence of Lithuania. So the big question for a lot of Eastern European states is, where does Vladimir Putin intend to stop? Exactly. And Fred, apart from the new Russian replacement for McDonald's, how else is Russia Mm. trying to buck the Western sanctions? Yeah, I mean, I I think right now the Russians feel that they're actually in a fairly comfortable position. I mean, one of the things that the Biden administration said uh, as as the war started, they said there would be crippling sanctions that would cripple this country's economy. Uh, And being on the ground here, it certainly seems to us as though Russia's economy is actually fairly uh, resilient and is still somewhat on its feet. There are no doubt big issues here. A lot of people have lost their jobs. A lot of the industries have problems getting parts and especially higher end equipment, uh, which they need. But by and large, inflation seems to be under control. The shelves are still quite well stocked in, uh, in many stores. And the Russians have said they now also believe that they have inflation under control and that they can keep going at this pace for a fairly long period of time. So it certainly seems as though um, if there is something that is going to make Vladimir Putin change course, the sanctions in their current form are probably not going to be it, Jake. Yeah, that doesn't sound particularly crippling. Fred Pleitkin in Moscow, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Also in our world lead, quote, give up or die. That's what pro-Russian forces are <clears throat> excuse me, telling Ukrainian President Zelensky's army in the key city of Severodonetsk, according to Russian state media today. Now Ukrainian officials say all three bridges into that city are impassable, making the journey even harder for civilians who want to escape. But... A little more than 50 miles west of Severodonetsk, some who initially fled came back and are now hell-bent on staying put. CNN's Ben Wiedemann visits a family in Slovyansk sleeping in a damp, dank basement as Putin's war knocks at their front door. The city of Slovyansk may be half empty. 
but the Church of the Holy Spirit is almost full. The city is perilously close to the front lines, but with faith and stubbornness the few stay put, while others have come back. Luba and her family left shortly after the outbreak of war, staying with relatives in western Ukraine. She returned a month ago. For now, home sweet home is a dark, damp basement shared with other building residents. Having lived through the fighting here in 2014, she left because she didn't want to go through it all over again. I was scared for my son and my grandson, she says. Yet hospitality had its limits and homesickness took a toll. We felt our relatives were sick of us, she says. They have their own lives. You can put up with your relatives for a while, but we decided it was time to go back. The basement is far from comfortable, but it's better than upstairs when the bombs and missiles fall at night. Her 14-year-old grandson, Bogdan, prefers it here. Even if you can go to a safer place elsewhere, he says, it's better to be at home. Even if you have to sleep in the basement. The longer this war goes on, the cooler the welcome becomes for those who have fled to safer ground. And as dangerous as it may be here, there's no place like home. With no cooking gas to be had, the kitchen has moved to the yard. The city water supply was knocked out. It now must be pumped by hand. Gone are the comforts and conveniences of modern life. But at least it's home. And Ukrainian officials say that uh, it may be just a matter of days, Jake, before Severodonetsk falls to the Russians. And the worry is that Slovyansk, which is a city very close to the Russian front lines, may be in the crosshairs. Jake? All right, Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. A woman brushes off a man's unwanted sexual advance. But it is his response that's going viral. Why women in China say this is shocking but not surprising. Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, growing outrage after the brutal and shocking assault of four women in northern China. The violent attack started when one of the women rejected a man's unwanted advances at a restaurant. On Friday, security footage goes on to show the women being punched, kicked and dragged by their hair on the ground. The video already has drawn hundreds of millions of views on social media, and as CNN's Selena Wang reports, it is sparking a debate about violence against women in China. We want to warn you, some of the footage we're about to show you is graphic and disturbing. A late-night dinner turned violent in northern China. Graphic surveillance video of what follows unleashed fear and outrage across China. It shows a man approaching one of the women. He touches her back an unwanted advance. She pushes him away. He slaps her in response. The assault escalates. A scuffle breaks out as she and her friends try to defend themselves. The woman is dragged outside by her hair. Hit with a beer bottle, the men relentlessly kick her. As one yells, beat her to death. Her friend's head hits the pavement with a thud. 
The viral video sparked uproar, not just over the brazen brutality of the attack, but the indifference from bystanders, with only women seen intervening. A woman at the scene called the police and told authorities the following, according to state media. Before this happened, I always thought that going out to dinner at night was a perfectly normal thing. But now, I have some sort of PTSD. These men feel they could just freely attack women in such a public place was because so many men in the past who have done the same. So the men feel, you know, I can do the same without any consequences. Attacks like this are horrific and horrible to watch, but Chinese social media is flooded with them. And activists say we cannot look away. Violence against women is rampant in China. Video from earlier this year in Xi'an shows a man viciously punching his wife while she holds their child in her lap. The man later pins his wife down and continues to punch her head. The man was suspended by his company after the footage went viral, according to state media, and police said they detained him for five days. Another shows a man kicking and punching a woman in broad daylight in 2020. State media reported the man was investigated, but it's unclear if any legal action was taken. Domestic violence was only made punishable by law in 2016. Physical abuse was not even grounds for divorce before 2001. So far, authorities have detained nine people involved in the restaurant incident. Local police have ramped up patrols on the streets in the area. Authorities claim the woman and her friend are in stable condition. Yet unverified videos show what is believed to be one of their brutally beaten bodies lying motionless on a gurney in the hospital, bloodied and bandaged, her helplessness resonating across China. After watching that video, Jake, so many women in China said that could have been me. They see this as part of systemic violence against women in a patriarchal society. And the government is trying to silence the backlash. Chinese social media has been blocking accounts, has even censored posts for merely voicing concerns about women's safety. Jake. Terrific. Selena Wang in Beijing. Thank you for that report. Appreciate it. Coming up, she was arrested in dramatic fashion after claiming Florida was falsifying its COVID data. But now an independent investigation says that actually it's her who has numbers that don't add up. Stay with us. In our health lead now, insufficient evidence. That's what a new inspector general report says it found in response to Rebecca Jones' accusations that she was asked to falsify COVID data on Florida's dashboard. CNN's Kristen Holmes dives into Jones' charges. Jones' charges garnered coverage. It led her to become a progressive cause celeb, despite claims that experts say now do not stand up to scrutiny. DeSantis. Explosive claims from a prominent critic of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis were, quote, unsubstantiated and unfounded, according to an internal state investigation. Rebecca Jones, who helped build the state's coronavirus data dashboard, gained fame after claiming health department officials in the DeSantis administration were asking her to manipulate data to minimize the scale of the COVID outbreak as the governor was pushing to reopen businesses. When I brought basically what the results of whether or not each county could open to superiors, they essentially told me they did not like the results. 
officials denied the allegations. Now, in a 27-page report obtained by CNN and first reported by NBC News, the Florida Department of Health's Office of the Inspector General says it found insufficient or no evidence to back up most of Jones' claims after interviews with over a dozen witnesses. In a rebuttal to the findings, Jones and her attorney argue the inspector general has a misunderstanding of her complaints. In July of 2020, Jones filed a whistleblower complaint after being fired for what officials say was insubordination. Jones alleging it was retaliation for not altering the numbers to favor reopening the state, a claim officials denied. She was putting data on the portal, which the scientists didn't believe was valid data. So she didn't listen to the people who were her superiors. Jones later launched her own online dashboard of Florida coronavirus data. And later that year, state police raiding her family's home. Police, come down now. Do not point that gun at my children. Over a text message sent through the Department of Health's internal system after she had been fired, urging others to speak out over alleged COVID denialism. According to the search warrant obtained by CNN, investigators traced the IP address of the messages to Jones' house. Jones denied sending the message. This is just a very thinly veiled attempt of the governor to intimidate scientists. In January of 2021, she was charged with computer-related offenses. She pleaded not guilty. A Democrat formerly appointed by DeSantis to handle the state's emergency response has said Jones was spreading disinformation to her hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers. Twitter has suspended her account. This week, a Florida state audit report finding the state's ability to accurately report COVID data at the beginning of the pandemic was hindered by, quote, inaccurate or incomplete data reported to the state by health agencies. And one thing that's interesting here is that actually both sides are claiming vindication in this report, noting that unsubstantiated means that there was no evidence to prove or disprove those allegations. But we have to point out that some of Jones's claims were actually found to be unfounded by the inspector general. And just one thing to note here about what Jones is doing now, she is currently the leading Democratic candidate in Florida's first congressional district, meaning that she is likely to take on Matt Gates for his seat in November. Jake. Mm. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Appreciate it. 31 men with alleged ties to a white supremacist group are arrested near a pride parade in Idaho. Now police say there are death threats. Wait until you hear who they're aimed at. Stay with us. Welcome to the Lean Up Jake Tapper. This hour, a mystery in the Amazon jungle deepens as the president of Brazil says something bad happened to a journalist and a researcher who went missing last week. This after their belongings and human organs were found. Plus, when is old too old? A top Democratic strategist says the whispers among Democrats about President Biden's age are growing louder, and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won't commit to supporting Biden in 2024. And leading this hour, new details emerging about the 31 men arrested in Idaho for conspiracy to riot at a small Idaho city's pride parade. Police were alerted to the group after someone called 911, reporting a group dressed like an army getting into a truck. The men allegedly all have ties to the white nationalist group Patriot Front, which pushes racist, fascist, and anti-Semitic beliefs. Let's get right to CNN's Sarah Seidner, live for us in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And Sarah, more than 30 men were arrested, but officials say they did not have any firearms. What was the objective of the group? 
you know, it is a question that they are going to have to answer themselves. But authorities say they definitely uh, were going to try and riot. They said they found them in the back of a U-Haul, uh, that they were headed near a, a pride event that was happening here at this uh, park and in other parts of downtown uh, here in this town. And they said, you know, they had riot gear with them, including shields and smoke bombs and some weapons, although not uh, firearms. Uh, the men were apparently standing uh, outside of the truck when someone spotted them. They all had the same clothes on. And so someone said they looked like a little bit of an army, according to a witness. That's how police were alerted that they were in town. And I should mention, uh, this group is familiar to us uh, because they are an offshoot of a group that was at the Charlottesville Deadly Unite the Right uh, rally, that white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that ended the death of Heather Heyer after she was run over uh, by a man who, by the way, uh, also used to subscribe to this group. He used to uh, wear some of the insignia, if you will. Um, and so this group was a splinter of that after what happened in 2017. The publicity was so high, they changed their name from American Vanguard to Patriot Front. The leader uh, of American Vanguard became the leader of uh, this section of Patriot Front, and he too uh, was arrested uh, as a part of the 31 people who were arrested here. Of course, this has shaken this town. Uh, a lot of folks uh, are very, very upset uh, to see this happen in their town. Here is what police said after there were rumors uh, that this was another group or some other uh, type of conspiratorial uh, ideas. Let me be very clear here. These were not law enforcement officers that we arrested. These were members of the hate group Patriot Front. These were not Antifa in disguise, nor were they FBI members in disguise. So you are hearing directly from the police chief who made very clear who this was. Uh, they have unmasked all 31 of these men. That has caused um, a lot of issues for them because many of them, people may not know their names or faces, but they will now. They will have to be arraigned as well. They are only charged with a misdemeanor because nothing happened. Police say they stopped what they think would have been a riot from happening here. Jake. Sarah Seidner in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, another wave of mass shootings this weekend across the United States. People sitting on their front porches or driving in cars or walking down the sidewalk or eating in a restaurant. Now, statistics, victims of gun violence. And as CNN's Omar Jimenez reports, at least one victim was only one year old. We have instructed our federal prosecutors and law enforcement agents to prioritize prosecutions of those who are responsible for the greatest gun violence. The Department of Justice is announcing measures aimed directly at gun violence and gun trafficking. We are cracking down on the criminal gun trafficking pipelines that flood our communities with illegal drugs. We have set up strike forces to disrupt those networks. The effort, similar to those in years past, comes on the heels of a violent weekend across the country with mass shootings spanning states from Kentucky to Colorado. A Denver house party ended with six people shot, two of them killed. My biggest concern was just making it out and not getting shot. In Gary, Indiana, a mass shooting at a nightclub left two dead and four injured. About 50 shots, 30 to 50 shots. Just ringing it, just, just back to back. It was part of a weekend where in nearby Chicago, police say at least six were shot and killed and over 30 shot in total throughout the city. 
There's been communities that suffered with gun violence for decades. Shootings and homicides in Chicago are actually down this year, according to the police department. But that's compared to what was a record year last year for homicides. Countrywide, among those shot this weekend, kids. In St. Louis, a one-year-old girl was shot during a likely carjacking, according to police. She's no longer in critical condition. In Amarillo, Texas, an apparent road rage incident left an eight-year-old boy shot in the head. The boy's father tells CNN he honked at a truck that ran a red light. The truck driver slowed, got behind the father's car, then allegedly fired one shot, hitting his eight-year-old son. The father told CNN, all I did was honk. I didn't think nothing of it. His son survived with a hairline fracture on his skull. But the father added, I want these gun laws to change with the way the world is now. It's part of why thousands protested in the March for Our Lives rallies, urging lawmakers to get beyond a bipartisan start and pass gun violence prevention measures. No matter if you are a gun owner or a Republican or not a Republican, we all agree we must act to stop this. Attorney General Garland hopes this latest effort at the federal level can make a difference. If you put illegal guns on our streets or into the hands of violent offenders, the Justice Department will spare no resource to hold you accountable. And on the current bipartisan framework for gun safety legislation, Attorney General Merrick Garland added it would be meaningful progress in their fight to combat a surge in gun crimes. That's, of course, if it actually passes. And for context, according to the National Gun Violence Archive, this year the United States is on pace to either meet or surpass the worst year for mass shootings we've seen since at least 2014. All right, Omar Jimenez in Chicago for us. Thank you so much. Here to discuss... Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is part of that bipartisan group of senators negotiating a bill on gun reform. Senator, thanks for joining us. So the framework includes with you. framework includes provisions such as funding to incentivize states to pass red flag laws, uh, mental health and school safety resources, and enhanced background checks for buyers between 18 and 21. So what do you say to critics who say, this doesn't go far enough. It doesn't raise the age limit for the purchase of semi-automatic weapons such as AR-15, something you were in favor of, for example. Well, Jake, uh, here's the thing. We've been trying. I've been here since 20, uh, 2010. We've been trying every year to do some what we call gun sense, common gun sense. And raised in a state like West Virginia, who has a, a, a really, truly gun, uh, gun culture, we're taught at a very young age basically how to do the guns and everything's about safety. We're taught we never basically sell our gun to a stranger. We never even loan our gun to a family member or a friend who's irresponsible. That's our responsibility as that gun owner. And with that, I take that very, very uh, seriously. And I think that people have to look at uh, law-abiding gun owners, the people that will do the right thing. Now, you have an awful lot of people that have done the wrong thing, but they're in the minority, but they're getting the majority of all of this. This is wrong. We have to do something, and gun owners are standing up. You take polls around the country, in my state too, law-abiding gun owners want something to be done. They don't want people who should never have a gun or is mentally incapacitated or not stable to be able to access anything they want. We're talking by, about uh, this doesn't go far enough for many people. It goes too far for some other people. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is, Jake, for the first time we've been able to come down this path and start with something that's sensible and reasonable. It's all based around 
common sense. It's based around children. It's based around prevention and intervention. That's yeah. what it's based about. So we've got to take what we've got as a positive and work off of this. But this should not. This piece of legislation, as drafted, should not be threatening to any law-abiding citizen in the United States of America. Not one. And no law-abiding gun owner should be offended by this. We take no rights away, no privileges away. We don't basically threaten you're going to lose anything at all. Right. Except maybe if we don't do this, you might lose a child or a grandchild. So your group of bipartisan uh, negotiators includes 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats. You're going to need all 10 of those Republicans to break the filibuster, allowing this to come to a vote. Uh, according to Politico, a Republican aide involved in the negotiation stressed that the agreement was a, quote, agreement on principles, not an agreement on legislative tax. Do you have any concerns at all that once that becomes legislative taxed and once gun owners of America and other groups start lobbying against it, uh, that you could lose some of those 10 Republican senators? Jake, I truly believe in my heart of hearts we'll have more than 10 Republicans. I really do. I've been very encouraged by Leader McConnell, uh, the ranking member on the, uh, on the Republican side, Leader McConnell, his leadership team and John Cornyn, so many of my good friends and colleagues on the Republican side who've stepped forward looking at a most reasonable pathway to do something that will protect the children of America. Uh, the Democrats, a lot of my Democrat friends, and Chris Murphy's done a great job of leading this, bringing people together, understanding that Chris wants a lot more and has always done that, but basically Chris has been pragmatic enough to understand that we've got to start and get something done. And don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. That's where the Democrats are. And on the other side, there's going to have the Republicans who know it's time to do something that makes sense. Let's help the people with mental illnesses. Let's make sure we identify those children or people that need this type of assistance and help. And as you see, a lot of assistance is here in the schools for mental health in schools and, uh, and yeah. supportive services. There are a lot of good things in here that can help us prevent the next horrible tragedy. Your governor, Jim Justice, praised the bipartisan agreement, but he, he reiterated he's still opposed to red flag laws, which give officials the authority to, to take guns away from individuals who might pose a threat to themselves or others. If states don't pass red flag laws as your legislation tries to incentivize, does that mean that those states will not have the, uh, the benefit of, of this measure? Kids well, I'm, I'm hoping, let me just hope, my state of West Virginia, when they get a chance to look at this, I get a chance to talk to them. It's basically incentives, okay? We're not forcing anybody, but I can assure you, if people look at the states that step forward, when you have uh, Florida and you have uh, the leading senator from Texas, the, the states as red as our states, they're looking, this makes sense. It makes common sense that we can do something to incentivize, that we can identify a person that needs help. A, a young person or even a grown-up who basically has changed completely and they're, they're, they're harmed, they can be of harm to their family and their friends and society as a whole, and someone's allowed to come forward, we're going to make sure due process is there. You just can't make a claim because you're mad at your brother or sister or a family member or a friend, and you want to embarrass them. You can't do that, and there will be harsh penalties against that to deter that from happening. I'm hoping they look at it with open arms because I can assure you, when we're trying to have economic development anywhere in the country, people look at the, the state itself, the laws that we have, and basically the school system. Well, not only do you look at the quality of the school system, how about the security and the safety of a school system? That's just as important. All right, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, thank you so much. Good luck with the bill.
Thanks, Everyone Jake. told Donald Trump not to declare victory on election night. Everyone except for one person who apparently had had some wine. Then, access to one of the most popular national parks in the country is cut off as rivers wash out bridges and roads. That's ahead. Turning to our politics lead, idiotic claims and absolute rubbish. Those are just a couple of the ways former Attorney General Bill Barr described Donald Trump's baseless election fraud allegations and videotaped depositions played during today's January 6th committee hearing. A primary focus of today's hearing was to show that Trump continued to peddle false election fraud claims even after being personally and repeatedly told those claims were not legitimate. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, the committee revealed how pushing the big lie was quite lucrative for members of the Trump team. The January 6th committee back to spotlight how former President Trump was intent on spreading lies about the 2020 election being stolen, choosing to listen to his allegedly drunk advisor Rudy Giuliani instead of the aides telling Trump he was likely to lose. My recommendation was to say that votes were still being counted. It's too early to to, to tell. The, the president disagreed with that. Was there anyone in that conversation who, in your observation, had had, had too much to drink? Uh, Mayor Giuliani. And the mayor was definitely intoxicated. Giuliani's lawyer denies Giuliani was drunk. It was Giuliani's advice that the former president ultimately followed that night. Frankly, we did win this election. The committee playing tape depositions from former Trump advisors, including his former campaign manager, Bill Stepien, who was a no-show at the hearing after his wife went into labor. Multiple former officials, including a Trump White House lawyer and the president's own attorney general, Bill Barr, explained that the conspiracy theories Trump was voicing were flat out false, including the one about Dominion voting machines switching votes. I never saw any evidence whatsoever to sustain those allegations. I told them that it was that it was uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time. President Trump refused to listen, despite Barr repeatedly shooting down the lies. The claims of fraud were bullshit completely bogus and silly based on complete misinformation. I thought, boy, if he really believes this stuff, he has, you know, lost contact with, uh, with uh, he's become detached from reality. Witness testimony portrayed President Trump as grasping at conspiracy theories after he lost the election. He said more people voted in Philadelphia than there were voters. And that was absolute rubbish. There was nothing... Uh, strange about the Philadelphia uh, turnout. There were so many of these allegations that when you gave him a very direct answer on one of them, he wouldn't fight us on it, but he would move to another allegation. Stepien said he considered himself part of, quote, team normal on the Trump campaign, as opposed to Rudy Giuliani's team, which included former Trump advisor Peter Navarro, who were pushing multiple false claims. I mentioned at that time that the CISA... Chris Krebs had recently released a report saying that the election was secure. And I believe Mr. Navarro accused me of being an agent of the deep state working with Chris Krebs against the president. The committee alleging Trump raised $250 million from donors based on those lies. On November 9th, 2020, President Trump created a separate entity called the Save America PAC. 
Most of the money raised went to this newly created PAC, not to election-related litigation. The committee saying $5 million of that money went to the company that put on the January 6th rally at the Ellipse near the White House that morphed into a march to the Capitol and ultimately the insurrection. And Trump's team sent more than 400 emails in the month after the election. That's according to our analysis. Donors were told the money would go to fighting election fraud, but of course that fraud didn't exist. And instead, millions of dollars went for political purposes. And Jake, day three of this seven-part hearing will be Wednesday morning. Vice Chair Liz Cheney is saying that that hearing will be delving into Trump's quest to corrupt his Justice Department with these election fraud lies. We're also expecting that a few former Justice Department officials will be testifying on Wednesday. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Is Joe Biden too old to run for re-election? Well, some Democrats are quietly asking that question and some not so quietly. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. A key primary election for a seat in the U.S. Senate takes place in Nevada tomorrow. The outcome could tip the balance of power in Congress. At stake is the future of the Democratic incumbent, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. She's the first Latina elected to the Senate in 2016. Then there are four Republicans who are trying to challenge her. CNN's Kyung La reports now from Las Vegas on how both parties are trying to motivate voters with just hours to go. All right, guys, all right, let's go. Nevada's largest and most effective get-out-the-vote machine for Democrats We with the culinary union feels the political headwinds in this primary. Ariana Tovar and her team have walked 10 hours a day since late March, six days a week in the scorching desert heat to energize registered Democrats. When you talk to people, they're, how are they feeling? They're mad. They're mad at Democrats. Are you worried about Senator Cortez Masto this year? Uh, yes. Going to be tough. This election. Incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto is one of the country's most vulnerable Democratic senators running this midterm. President Biden won this state by just two percentage points. His approval ratings now down. A razor-thin Democratic Senate majority is in danger. What are some of the things that have made you unhappy with the Democrats? Um, God. I have to invite you in for that one. This voter's long list includes inflation, housing, and gas prices. Republican challenger Adam Laxalt calls it opportunity. This is our chance to flip Nevada red. Running on kitchen table economics, culture wars, and former President Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen, Laxalt has avoided interviews with non-right-wing press. Adam, do you have a second just to answer a few questions? Laxalt's message has sunk in. The culture has changed in America to hate America, but he's the only chance we have to to reverse that. If we don't reverse it, this country is doomed. You understand doomed? The January 6th commission is holding its hearings as Nevada heads to the polls. But evidence of an attempted coup doesn't seem to matter in this room. They're trying to flip the script. They're trying to say that uh, that the American people went in there and President Trump told them to go in there and storm. The doors were open. The facts may not matter. But the Trump cavalry's final push in Nevada might. Laxalt already won Trump's endorsement. And there's no one more trustworthy in Nevada than Adam Laxalt. But Republican Sam Brown. 
Hello, sir. My name is Sam Brown. I hope you'll consider voting for me. Also running for the Senate nomination has seen a grassroots surge while hammering Laxalt as the Republican establishment. I'm a West Point grad, Army vet, um, Afghanistan wounded. Brown's military service and Purple Heart are winning him fans. Thank you. But he admits he's the underdog. As you walk the street in record-setting 109-degree heat, Donald Trump Jr. was rallying for Adam Laxalt. I'm here for Adam. How do you compete against that? They can support Donald Trump all day long, but at the end of the day, Adam is a known political figure in the state, and he's failed Republicans before. Senator Cortez Masso's campaign says that she will remain in D.C. through Election Day. She is running unchallenged in the primary as a Democrat. As far as the general election, her campaign says that the senator will lean in on abortion rights as a way to motivate the Democratic base. And Jake, with the Roe v. Wade decision still expected any time in the next couple of weeks, they anticipate that the senator will be able to make a very potent message to Democrats with that decision. Jake. Mm. Kang La in Las Vegas, thank you so much. To South Carolina now, where two Republican members of Congress are fighting to keep their jobs in primaries after daring to speak out against former President Trump. Congresswoman Nancy May sharply criticized Trump in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. Congressman Tom Rice went so far as to vote to impeach Trump. The former president is now seeking revenge by backing both of their Republican challengers in Tuesday's primary races. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now live from Charleston, South Carolina. Jeff, you were with Congresswoman Mace while she was campaigning this weekend. How does she seem? Is she worried? Jake, there's no doubt that she knows she's in a tough competition here, certainly given the environment, certainly the January 6th hearing have revived all of the uh, feelings of January 6th. So among Republicans, that could certainly play a couple different ways. But she does also believe that she has the argument that she won this district uh, and she won it back from Democratic hands. So she believes she has a narrow upper hand. But Jake, when we asked her if she has any regrets over certifying that election in 2020, she said no, but she did not mention Trump in her answer. I'm a constitutional conservative, and I voted with folks like Rand Paul and Mike Lee and Senator Tim Scott to preserve the Constitution, because what we couldn't do is allow one person, the Vice President of the United States, to single-handedly overturn the Electoral College or the results of a presidential election, because then you're setting the precedent that Kamala Harris can do that in 2024. So calling herself a constitutional conservative, Jake, also she was campaigning at the side of Nikki Haley, of course, a former popular governor from here who is a member of President Trump's cabinet. Mm. And you spoke today with Congressman Tom Rice, who's, who's fighting off a, a challenge from, his, from the MAGA right. Uh, how has his vote to impeach President Trump played a role in his campaign? Look, Jake, he is one of 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach. Uh, most are not running again. His district is just a bit north here uh, in Charleston. We caught up with him. Uh, most voters wanted to talk about inflation, but one voter uh, said he congratulated him for doing the brave decision for casting that impeachment vote. I asked the congressman about that vote that still hangs over his head. I don't think it will cost me my election. Certainly my hope that it doesn't. But if doing the right thing costs me an election, then I'll wear it like a badge. So he calls it a badge of honor, Jake. He is in a much more competitive race than Nancy Mace's. He's running against a state representative named Russell Fry, also backed by a former president, Trump. That race is likely to go into a runoff in Election Day here tomorrow in South Carolina. 
Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny reporting live from Charleston, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. David Urban, let me start with you. There are a lot of Republicans getting primaried uh, by people in the MAGA right who say that, you know, they're not loyal enough to, to Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, you see Congressman Rice yep. directly defied Trump. How far is Trump willing to go uh, to get these non-loyal Republicans who might be great lawmakers out of the party? Well, he's, you see, he's, he's willing to go all the way, right? And so you, you may end up losing the seat, right? And, and that's the part that Republicans have to understand, right? Nancy Mace is in a, like, you know, I think she's an R plus one district or a D plus two district, right? The woman that's challenging her yeah. lost the seat to a Democrat. Right. I mean, so th- these, so are incredibly, yeah. these are incredibly yeah. tough races. This is, you know, the Brian Fitzpatrick seat in, in, uh, in Lower Bucks in Pennsylvania. These seats, if they're not held by these people, are going to end up flipping to be Democratic seats. And so if the Republicans in their zeal for being, you know, MAGA first above all want to run that direction, we're going to run right off a cliff. Yeah. Nia Malika Henderson, this weekend you heard, you heard former South Carolina governor and U.N. Amb- uh, ambassador Nikki Haley stumping for Nancy uh, Mace in her home state. I want you to, to listen to this moment uh, from the campaigning. Tuesday is election day, and I love election days, especially when I'm not in it. Thank you, and God bless. Some cheers there for President Haley, President Haley. And, she, and you know, she is somebody that some Republicans hope runs for president in 2024. Yeah, and listen, she is not only active in this uh, campaign in South Carolina. She's been in New Hampshire. She's been in Iowa. She is this unique politician. She at one point was one of the most popular politicians in the country, had an approval rating of 63%. And it's because she really was able to thread this line of being in Trump's world but not a Trumpist. And you saw some of that. After January 6th, she said that Donald Trump never had a future in politics, that he'd fallen so far uh, in terms of his legacy and history to judge him harshly. Uh, she then regretted that and tried yeah. to go down to Mar-a-Lago. And Donald Trump said, absolutely not. And then she said that she wouldn't run in 2024 if Donald Trump uh, ran. I think some uh, possible uh, 2024 Republicans are looking at this week, right, all of the hearings to see, well, listen, how strong is Donald Trump going forward in 2024? Could you, if you're a Nikki Haley, credibly make a, a run for the White House? I think, again, her problem is what is her lane, right? Is she the evangelical <clears throat> choice? Is she sort of the Chamber of Commerce yeah. by choice? She's not really a Trumpist. Uh, she's not in office in the way that somebody like Ron DeSantis is or Greg Abbott, who have kind of stronger cases to make uh, to that Trump brand. But we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in 2024. I'll go farther than that. I'll say a bunch of Republicans who are thinking about running for president in 2024 are hoping that it's devastating for Donald Trump. <laughs> I, think that, I, think that there are, yes. I think that there are a bunch of them who want, it, true. who want it to be as bad as possible for Donald Trump. I think so, because you know they need him out of the way. If yeah. They're going to have their own political future. I mean, he, he has tied them up in knots over and over again. And that's why I think you know, what, what you showed there with Nikki Haley on stage with Nancy Mace, I mean, the invisible primary always starts early. It's already going on. And the subtext of all of these candidates trying to figure out a way to pressure uh, Donald Trump to go against Donald Trump without actually saying that that's what they're doing. I mean, she's standing on a stage next to a candidate that he's trying to take out, right? It's a direct confrontation uh, to the former president. Uh, but as, you know, Neil was outlining, I mean, that's it's a tricky place for anyone to be right now. And so I think to your point, if these hearings this week are what ultimately takes Trump out of the party, I mean, I remember after January 6th, 
you know, obviously it was a devastating day, but there were a lot of Republicans who were pretty eager to take an opportunity to rid their party of Donald Trump. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, then they realized, oh, wait, they had to turn around real quick and, and fix that after they realized it wasn't the death blow they thought it would be. And what Haley's doing uh, with Nancy Mace there, going against Trump's endorsement, we saw Chris Christie and Vice President Pence do in Georgia mm-hmm. uh, backing uh, Brian Kemp. But I want to turn to the Nevada uh, piece that we just did with Kyung Law's great reporting. Uh, that's going to be a tough election for Senator uh, Cortez Masto. Um, it's, it's, a, it's always a swing state. Yeah. Harry Reid, bless his soul, has passed away. He had that state wired for Democrats. I would not want to be a Democrat running for uh, re-election uh, in a battleground state this year. You're right. I think one thing that's interesting is that, you know, she's not really contested in this election, but yet they're on the doors. The largest culinary union in the state. It's the state's uh, the third most diverse state in our country. She can't show up in August just because she's not being challenged right now saying, hey, I've been with you. Vote for me. She's saying I have to hit the doors. I have to excite people because in a state like Nevada, I remember in 2020, um, canvassing is huge there. Like tactically to win, you need to hit the doors. So to start early, we weren't able to do that in the pandemic of 2020. And it was challenging. And I think, you know, getting ahead of the ball is good. But it is going to be tough. And you want to see how tough. So take a look at this. Democratic Senator Patty Murray in Washington (laughs) State. That is a Democratic state. And she is the most powerful Democratic woman in the Senate. Uh, And she is out with a new TV ad in June in the Seattle market attacking Uh, uh, her Republican challenger. Take a look. What's at risk voting for Mitch McConnell's handpicked candidate for Senate, Tiffany Smiley? Everything. I met with President Trump and I was so impressed. Risking our democracy since Tiffany Smiley still has serious questions about the 2020 elections. Risking women's reproductive health care. I am 100% pro-wife. Putting Social Security and Medicare at risk. And Mitch McConnell as majority leader. Murray has held the yep. seat for more than 30 years. She's going negative in June. Do not sleep on <laughs> Tiffany Smiley. This is, this is the sleeper race right here. She's, she's up. She has this on her website. Look how desperate Patty Murray is. Um, Tiffany Smiley's raised a lot of money. She's got an incredible narrative. And, and uh, you know, the things that are, uh, most people in America, inflation, gas prices, formula shortage, yeah. all those things really hitting home in Washington. Plus, you have all the Portland stuff. So it's, uh, it's, it's ripe. That's a, that's a seat that's... You could wake up on election night One the day after I, and say, like, oh, my God, what you, happened? You could. But the fact that this ad is already up in June yeah. tells you that Patty Murray is on top of it. Yeah. And she yep. talks about, I mean, she calls herself, you know, a mom in, in, right. in tennis shoes. She has frequently been underestimated as a politician. Mm-hmm. She's actually very sharp and on top of it. And I think this demonstrates that. But I do think she hasn't been battle tested. She hasn't been. This but but it is true that I think every, almost every cycle we've had this same narrative about uh, Patty Murray oh. from Republicans that this could be the year I, I, uh, listen, to knock Patty Murray out. Tiffany Smiley's impressive, it's a impressive candidate. But she's I, going to where voters care right now, and it's issues of row. She's not pulling yep. punches, which is important. I think voters want to see a candidate that's going to fight. They want to see a win. fighter. Yeah. yeah, they want to see somebody that's going to fight. And and at the end of the day, I do think too. This does underscore the problems that the president has, right? I mean, the president's a huge problem for somebody like Patty Murray. But I do think you've seen, certainly in governor's races, we've seen some Democrats have success distancing themselves from the president. It's going to be interesting to see if that'll hold (laughs) up. His approval rating is 73%. I mean, Biden is doing terrible among among Democrats. And, you know, you see them trying to distance themselves because of those low approval ratings. All right. We've got a few more months of elections to talk about. We've got to leave that one there. Coming up, a new weapons wish list. What Ukraine says it needs now to have a chance against Putin's army. Stay with us. 
In our world lead moments ago, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky taking stock of the battle for the East, saying it will, quote, surely go down in military history as one of the most brutal battles in Europe and for Europe. Zelensky's comments come as one of his top advisors tweets a familiar wish list of weapons, including howitzers, rocket launchers, tanks, armored vehicles, and drones, ahead of a key NATO meeting later this week. CNN's senior international correspondent Matthew Chance is live for us in Kiev right now. Matthew, Zelensky is clearly frustrated that Ukraine is not getting what they're asking for from allies. But even if they did get that full weapons wish list, would Zelensky's forces come being able to, would they come close to matching Russia's concentrated firepower in the east? Um, well, I think they, they could well do, certainly if they get the, the kind of level of weaponry that they're asking for. I mean, that, that list is very long indeed. They're talking about wanting 500 battle tanks, uh, 300 multiple launch rocket launchers, um, 1,000 howitzer big field guns, another 2,000 uh, assorted armoured vehicles and drones and things like that. So it, it would give them what they say is heavy weapon parity on the battlefield, which would, of course, enable them to you know, put up a much better fight than they are at the moment in the East, because at the moment, at times, they're outnumbered in terms of art- artillery pieces 10 or 15 to 1. And so the, it's, it's enormously stacked against them, the odds and the, and the forces at the moment. I, I think the big concern for the Biden administration and other Western allies as well is that they want to give Ukraine enough weapons to hold off the Russians, and even to push them back a bit, they don't want to give them so much that they're so successful on the battlefield that they pushed the Russians all the way back to Moscow, uh, for instance, and uh, attempted to strike inside the borders of the Russian Federation or even to take back Crimea from Russia that was illegally annexed from the country back in 2014. So it's, it's a very difficult and delicate balance in terms of the supply of weapons that the Biden administration and the Western allies are trying to strike, Jake. And and there were Russia Day celebrations throughout Russia this weekend. Some were in Ukraine, too, though. How were those received? Oh, yes. I mean, they they were received, I think, with scepticism in the sense that, you know, we all saw the pictures of uh, Ukrainian citizens waving Russian flags, celebrating on television, um, uh, on, on Russian television, those images. It wasn't clear how many of them were involved because the shots were quite tight. You know, you couldn't see the broader area. Um, But of course, these areas where these celebrations took place are filled with Russian troops with guns. And so it's not clear to what extent these people were under uh, some kind of duress. Ukrainian officials say that people may have been paid there or given food uh, to attend these these celebrations and and, and danced for the food, uh, as it were. I think there's also a degree of alarm as well, because these kinds of events show the lengths to which Russia is going already to Russify these areas that it has conquered, holding these events, making the Russian ruble, the currency, doing other things as well, change the school syllabus. It's all very alarming if you're a Ukrainian uh, watching your country um, disintegrate like this. Matthew Chance and Keith for us. Thank you so much. A mystery in the jungle. A journalist and a researcher disappear deep in the Amazon. And now Brazil's president says something bad happened to them. That story next. Brazilian authorities are scouring the Amazon rainforest for a missing British journalist and a local indigenous expert. The two men went missing last Sunday while on a trip to a remote area in the far western part of Amazon Estate, home to the largest number of uncontacted indigenous people in the world. 
CNN's Matt Rivers joins us now live. And Matt, Brazil's president just gave an update on the search. What does he have to say? Yeah, these are two men, Jake, who disappeared back on June 5th. It would be uh, indigenous affairs expert Bruno Raujo Pereira and a veteran news correspondent, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dom Phillips. He's worked for a number of different organizations throughout his career based in Brazil. The two of them were working in the part of the Amazon estate that you just mentioned, a place called the Havadi Valley, uh, very remote. They were working on a book about conservation efforts out there when they disappeared. President Jair Bolsonaro gave an update earlier today on their status, uh, saying, quote, the evidence leads us to believe that some malice was done to them because human remains have already been found in the river near where they disappeared. He said DNA testing is already underway in the capital of Brasilia to determine who those remains belong to. But he said that the evidence points to the opposite when asked if the odds of finding them alive were any good. He said personal belongings also belonging to the two men have been found at this point and blood in the boat of a suspect, police say, is linked to this case. And Matt, how how dangerous can this kind of work be for journalists and activists working to highlight uh, illegal activity in the Brazilian rainforest? Yeah, I called the local journalist that we work with when we go down to Brazil for reporting trips, Jake, and he told us that over the past few years, it has gotten exceedingly more dangerous. Uh, the number of activists that have been killed recently have gone up. Journalists, he said, though, have largely been spared. And yet, if it in fact turns out that these two men are found dead, uh, he said that is going to really rock uh, the journalism community within Brazil uh, and show that not only is it dangerous to be an activist, an environmental activist in Brazil these days, but even just reporting on that activity can also lead to losing your life. All right, Matt Rivers, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Roads and bridges washed away at one of the most popular national parks in the U.S. Now communities are cut off and tourists are feeling the impact. Stay with us. Rock slides and heavy flooding have forced all entrances at Yellowstone National Park to temporarily close for the next two days. Residents of Gardner, Montana, took video of flash floods taking out part of a home along the Yellowstone River. Parts of the community there are currently without water and power, park officials say. No inbound traffic is allowed until conditions are cleared and roads are assessed for any damage. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. All two hours just sitting right there like, like, a, like a fresh peach. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.